and welcome to this episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology, produced by David Border-Giles, Timothy Neal, Cameo Daly, Maithali Maher, and myself, Matt Barlow. This podcast is made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association and supported by the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University. In this episode, Maithali caught up over Zoom with Dr. Susan Wydell while they were on lockdown in Aotearoa, New Zealand, to talk about digital methods and the emotional and pragmatic dimensions of wayfaring through a crisis. Susan is a lecturer of social anthropology at the University of Otago in Aotearoa and a poet who has published in collections like Landfall and Cordite Poetry Review. Her ethnographic work deals with emotion and affect, care, mental health and well-being, and digital worlds. Her book, Living in the Tension, Care, Selfhood and Well-Being Among Faith-Based Youth Workers, came out of wanting to understand the prevalence of burnout amongst non-profit Christian care workers in Christchurch, New Zealand and in Kampala in Uganda. She also holds a Marsden Fast Start grant to study online medical crowdfunding and is running an online collective diary collecting people's dreams from during the pandemic. You can find it by googling COVID Dreams, capital C-O-V-I, capital D-R-E-A-M-S. I'll start by asking you the question that we usually start with asking interviewees, which is about your origin story as an anthropologist. Well, I like the way you phrase it as an origin story to make me feel like a superhero. That's great. Um, I think probably like most anthropologists, I can trace interests in related things back well before I became aware of the word anthropology or the discipline of anthropology. My first anthropology paper wasn't actually at university, but I was doing some distance papers through a Bible college um, because I was a bit bored at school, I guess. And I was sort of scrolling through their prospectus and um, I found one about this thing called anthropology, about cultural anthropology. So my first little taster of anthropology was a little bit unusual in that context and just brief and just through correspondence, but it gave me enough of a um, toe in the water that when I got to university, I was very keen to start anthropology papers. So yeah, a bit of travel combined with an interest in social justice and really nothing else seemed to click quite like anthropology did. Yeah, I think a lot of people have that mm. that nothing else quite clicked the same way feeling yeah. mm-hmm. about it. I was going to ask as well if there's another level of arrival, I guess, to how digital methods kind of became part of your research. Well, I did, when I went through my undergraduate and right through to my postgraduate, actually, I was doing media and communication studies alongside social anthropology um, because I could see see the relationship between the two and I could see the benefits and interest in both. So I guess that had me already attending to media and to texts, both visual and written, um, quite closely. So just being in digital spaces myself and being of a generation where we didn't necessarily start immersed in the digital but as we grew it grew with us and we grew with it and um, it became interesting to me almost out of necessity because that was where I was 
I was I was online just as I was in Dunedin or in Australia or wherever I happened to be and so I began to notice that and also as a student um, it's a very practical and accessible field site it doesn't cost a lot to reach or to get to um, it can be you know recorded quite easily and practically and so in some of the work that I've done in the years preceding this where I was working in kind of adjunct precarious part-time positions but still trying to engage in some research the digital became something that I could accessibly do without a large research grant so I think those structural factors did play a part. Yeah and I, I also think that those structural factors and the pragmatics and necessity are really interesting and productive ways to kind of arrive at a site of study or Mm. you know questions and yeah it's all research is just part of normal human processes it isn't kind of an intellectual fishing game isn't it we don't get to just cast our line wherever we want but yeah uh, there's, there's reasons practical reasons why and there's there's no real downside to letting those lead you I guess that's a good thing about what we do is that humans are everywhere social life is everywhere there's always something happening wherever you look so you're not disadvantaged looking there rather than somewhere else you just learn to look differently yeah yeah I wonder if I can move now to asking you how COVID-19 has affected you and your work well, I'm at home with my two young children. So as as is many people's situation, um, we're trying to do two sets of jobs at once and be, be a caregiver and a teacher and a cook and cleaner and all of that alongside academic work. And the maths of the day doesn't really add up, however you do it, um, to be able to have the same level of um, focus and commitment and um, progress in in the projects that we're working on. But um, at the same time, academic work has that level of flexibility that there's certain things that I'm able to do from home and there's always piles of books to be read and um, piles of writing to be done uh, and stolen hours between all the other things. So I'm ticking along, I would say. Yeah, for sure. One of the things that I was reading about that you've written was to do with the categories of distress Mm. and like the grief that people have in the near-term human extinction groups that mm-hmm. you were sort of thinking with online and grief as a loss of possible futures. Mm. Yes, like it's quite was- relevant here too, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, that work um, was around ecological distress as a whole category with this idea that what people are facing with um, with climate change is of a different scale and a different type of um, loss as people have necessarily experienced before in other parts of history and um, and acknowledging too that that's very deeply different in different places. Um, mm. But I think what I tried to do with that article was capture that human drive to make sense of new experiences when we do 
encounter things that are unexpected and different in the scale or type of pain or the scale or type of trauma, there's this push we have to spin new webs of significance, to find mm-hmm. ourselves in that, whether that's different metaphors or symbols or different categories of language, which is more what that article focuses on. I think people mm-hmm. want to make sense of what they're living through. And that is very much a parallel between what I saw with the groups I was studying her grappling with climate change and the distress that that brings up for them and what we're experiencing with COVID-19 and that something on this um, on this scale is quite new and the way it's affecting our lives is quite new for many of us individually and so in a similar way we're grappling with what am I feeling how do I make sense of that how do I put it into words and also how do I find a path through it which itself requires that same process of kind of mapping it out. You started to talk about your near-term human extinction Mm -hmm. study can you walk me through how that came about? So um, it came about quite personally I think Especially, I'd been involved in various bits and pieces of environmental activism, again, since I was a teenager, really. But when I when I had children, I think there's something about having children that forces you to to look towards the future. Every time you see them, it's like they're blurring in front of your eyes. They're like, you know, a referent to the future right in front of you all the time. So it did make me think a lot about what that future was going to look like. And so I was grappling with some some anxiety and uncertainty myself as to what that world would be ecologically and, you know, culturally and economically and all of that. And I heard whispers on the web, as you often do, of this particular group of people um, with this near-term human extinction movement. And um, that that. that were people discussing ecological grief and what to do with that and how to sit with that. So I went and joined. And um, so my first part of the study was just being present as a member of the group. Um, But it wasn't long before I began to get more of a sense of how I shared some perspectives, but not all perspectives with them. And again, that anthropology brain just kicked in and I began to want to for myself and my work um, unpack that a little more in relation to what I studied in terms of the anthropology of emotion and mm. um, the role of care and grief and noticing in particular what the way that the groups used discourses of grief and directly picked up um, language and graphs and symbols from like palliative care literature and kind of transposed mm. this from stuff written about individual loss and individual death to this huge scale of um anticipated global loss and uh, all the implications of that were so interesting to me so in the end it wasn't a digital ethnography because there's so much um, that's sensitive within those groups that um, you know they the complexity of responses when I raised the idea of doing that project was such that it was a more ethical decision to not. So I mm. only took really the broadest um, brushstrokes of, of understanding of what those groups were from being in them and no direct data. And instead, I shifted to a discourse analysis approach focused on the word hopium and looking at the many texts that the people in the group do produce for the public. Mm. So thing, everything from blogs to mainstream media articles. There's something so exciting to me about that way of treating ethnography sites as not direct 
sources of material but spaces of affect and Mm. a collective way of thinking a reason for gathering and to have that inform what you move towards and make public is it it seems like a really useful way to think about what our options are Mm. as researchers as anthropologists yeah my main thing when I think about digital methodologies is that I think we need to, as anthropologists, make a distinction between content analysis or textual analysis and digital Mm. ethnography, which Mm. might not be the most apparent for someone entering the field. And both things are valid. And because I've done both of them, again, for reasons like ethnographic refusal or for practical Mm. reasons, um, I've over time developed a bit more of a sensitivity as to the fact that they are actually different things, or at least a spectrum of things but what I very much encourage anthropologists to do is to push towards that end of digital ethnography if they can because there's such a richness in there that's quite unique to our field because there are a lot of other um, disciplines doing fantastic work with the digital and on, on digital spaces and a lot of them do focus on a textual analysis approach, which can be fantastic and interesting and looking at the content of what people put online, whether that's Mm. visual or written. But an ethnographic perspective to the digital is so distinctive. And I think there's some ways that we can draw really, really, almost obviously, literally from the traditions of ethnographic field work and physical places that actually do work surprisingly well in the digital. Things like taking field notes, um, things like looking for vignettes that are emerging and um, looking for the people, the social actors and what they're doing, the norms, the identities, the relationships, the behaviours, the things that people do online, not just what they say. And Mm. it, it really starts to come alive when you can identify a digital place and think about what people are doing there rather than just focusing on something within the bounds of the the texts that they put out themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess you're sort of advocating for all of the ways that a researchy eye could be deployed or cast (laughs) over places. Kind of very bad paraphrasing of what you said. (laughs) Yeah, I think um, I I would literally advise people wanting to do research on the internet to just pretend that they were going going to a place that you sit down and you look around, you know, who's there and what are they doing and paying attention to all those types of things like temporality, um, what's mm. happening at different times of day and at what speed, what's the mood, what's the feeling, and then. Um, And of course, they come through in different ways in the digital. It has its own aesthetic qualities, its own material and sensuous qualities compared to being in a physical social space. But you can still learn to read those for those more nuanced aspects of human experience. And of course, being reflexive has its place there as well, because you can take field notes um, that encompass what you did and what you felt and what your positionality was in relation to the other people or the other users in whatever digital space you're focusing on. And um, the same lessons, the same ethos that permeates our contemporary ethnographic practice can carry over and really enrich what we do in the digital as well. 
So not adapting too much maybe is the lesson, you know, not thinking (laughs) we're going digital and we have to let go of all those things we aspire to and capturing richness and complexity in the social world, but taking that with us when we go into a digital space and using it. That sounds really thorough. And it also sounds like you might have thoughts on what anthropology means in this moment or what kinds of anthropological ethoses or theories Mm. might be sort of salient in this moment well there's there's so much about the value of the humanities which does become apparent with something like what we're experiencing with COVID-19 I mean how much about the way it has affected us is to do with the biological qualities of humans and of the virus and how much is to do with human responses social relationships and spatial ordering and systems of commerce and education and politics and governance you know it Mm. it highlights that what we do is valuable because those are ultimately the things that shape how even something as cold and hard and brute as a virus plays out I think anthropology has a certain flexibility and adaptability that's evident in our history in terms of our methods, which is a real asset now. And also in terms of the way we analyse things and our ability to deal with complexity and nuance, to connect the micro and the macro, to see patterns on a large scale, but also account for difference and diversity, which I think is quite essential when we're talking about something that's a global scale and we're constantly using this word global, but there's a need to attend to quite different experiences in different places for cultural reasons as well as structural reasons reasons Mm. and the other thing I think about anthropology and approaching this is that going back to that idea of letting ourselves be human you know we're supposed to be the most human of the sciences and I think that goes for the people we might wish to study or study with and for ourselves that we maybe won't be the ones who rush in and want to do the research just because, because it's Mm. something that's happening and because there's a pressure to say something about it or produce research. But we can go forward a little more reflexively, thinking about, for example, which voices can't be speaking right now because they're busy doing other things like caring Mm. for children or, you know, working in hospitals or um, whatever's going on. And, practicing slow scholarship and practicing the kind of reflexive work on COVID-19 that might take a little longer, but that ultimately will provide a really human picture of what's going on. Mm, Slow scholarship. I have this very full hope that that will be one of the things that emerges. Mm, I think it is a time where that idea is almost forced to um, <laughs> forced to be become part of our practice and that could be a, a really beautiful thing. I mean I'm working roughly half time myself in terms of the hours I get each day so I'm hoping the hours I'm not technically working I'm able to let the topic settle and cogitate and you know, like um, rocks in a rock tumbler until the ideas themselves are more focused and and smoother somehow for when they finally reach public. That sounds that sounds like something really worth sort of holding on to. Hmm. 
it's a good time to think about how we want the world to be isn't it and the whole um the whole rhetoric online which I see come up again and again which inspires me so much is the one around not returning to what was normal and what's brought us here in so many ways but taking the time to revision the world reimagine what we actually want to go forward to rather than to go back to and I think that can absolutely count for academia as well yeah absolutely do you have a sense of what you want that to be for academia I think slower as we were saying and I think gentler and more Mm. more human I keep saying that but um (laughs) yeah realizing how much we can let go about the way things are done and the pressures there are to put out outputs and do the ritualistic attending of conferences and you know all things that are wonderful and important but not if they're done just because and um maybe do less and do it with greater appreciation and greater thought and greater heart. I really, really like that. <laughs> you know, it's like we said at the start, necessity can be a good friend or a mm. good guide sometimes. Mm. sometimes. It sure can. Yeah. I feel like that's a really good place to wind things up. Um, good. So... Thank you so much for taking some of your precious hours today to talk to me. It's been lovely to talk to you and thank you again for inviting me. You've been listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. This podcast is produced by David Border-Giles, Timothy Neal, Cameo Daly, Michael Mayher and Matt Barlow and made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. To learn more about this podcast, find us on Twitter. We're at AnthroConvo. And don't forget to rate and review us on your chosen podcasting platform.